Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Hey, let's pray and let's go ahead and get started then. Heavenly Father, thank you for just the people you brought out this morning to hear about you. And we are here to celebrate and to talk about what your resurrection means and what that empty tomb means. Lord, help us not just to talk about it, but to live it and to go out, Lord, and truly represent you in all we say and all we do. We thank you and praise you in your name. Amen. Amen. Cannot overemphasize to you enough how important today is. Because when we understand truly what this means, what Resurrection Sunday means, and the tomb being empty, it's, it's the most important day. You know, Paul, when he was talking Corinthians, says that if the resurrection was not true, if Jesus was still in the grave, he says we are the most pitiable of all people. So by the tomb being empty, what the celebration that is. Now, please don't get up and leave. Please don't think I'm being sacrilegious when I take this comment. Anybody could have got up on the cross and died for the sins of the world. I could have got up and said, I'm dying for the sins of the world. I could have said, listen, I love you so much that I don't want to see you go to hell. So I'm going to get up on the cross. I'm going to sacrifice myself. And you just tell God, the Father, that James died on the cross for your sins. Problem is, three days later, I'd still be in the tomb. See, by the tomb being empty this morning, it shows that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. It said that he accepted that payment for sin. And so this is where we have to put all of this together. You know, we focus on Jesus' death, what that looked like. We did that on Wednesday. But here this morning, we had the sunrise service where we get a chance to talk about the tomb being empty. But now we also get to talk about all of it together. And I cannot tell you how important this day is. This changes how you live. This changes what you do. It changes your mindset because you realize there is a man who was God that came down in the form of a man that died on the cross for our sins. And then three days later, the tomb is empty. That changes everything. But we have to understand that and to fully get that. And so to fully grasp what this means and looks at, let's look at these final words that Christ said. Now, I'm having you start in Luke chapter 2, but I just want to kind of refresh your memory here a little bit. When Jesus was on the cross, the last recorded words of Christ before he died, now obviously he said other things after he ascended, the last recorded words of Christ we find in John 19 and in Luke 23, and Jesus said this, It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, we talked about Wednesday, how those three words, it is finished, may be the most important words ever spoken. Because when it is finished, that means it's done. And that phrase, it is finished, is a really interesting word in the Greek. It means it's accomplished, it's come to an end, it means it's fulfilled, but it also is a financial term. If you'd go pay your taxes, you could say, it is finished. I have now paid my debt, and it's completely taken care of. Paul uses the same phrase in 2 Timothy 4, where he says, I fought the good fight, I have finished the race. So Jesus has accomplished it. And that's why he can then say, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Because he has accomplished what he was supposed to do. And then this morning, with the tomb being empty, we have the validation of it. Now please remember, 2,000 years ago, when the women came to the tomb in the morning, they were not coming to celebrate the empty tomb. They were coming in mourning and sadness and sorrow because they thought the body was still going to be in there. What a surprise it was. But it should have been surprised because Jesus had been talking about this for his whole earthly ministry. And this is what I want to talk about this morning. We see how it ends. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's accomplished. Come to an end fulfilled. But let's go back to the first recorded words of Jesus. And that's what I want you to do in Luke chapter 2. See, now in Luke chapter 2, Jesus is about 12 years old. 
We have his first recorded words. Now, obviously, he had said stuff before then, but these are the first recorded words of Christ in the Bible. Let's talk about this. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Luke 2, 41. Now, you have to know a little bit right here. If you were a good Jew, you would go to Jerusalem three times a year because there was three events that you were supposed to go for. You'd go for Passover and Pentecost, which were in the spring, and then you'd go for the Feast of Tabernacles, which were in the fall. So three times a year you'd go to these feasts, verse 42. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. A little bit of Jewish background here. When you were 12, 13 years old, the Jews started looking at you as becoming a man. We use a term today, we call it a bar mitzvah where they are starting to look at you with more spiritual responsibility, more responsibility in life. So here Jesus is 12. Now, when they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Jophus and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. Understand how they traveled back then. You were required to go to these feasts. So what would happen is as a town, as a group, you would all travel together. So there's this long caravan of people, of friends, family, relatives, all traveling. So as they're leaving Jerusalem and they don't find Jesus, they're not too worried. He could be a little bit farther up in the caravan. He could be a little bit farther back. He's 12 years old. They're not really too awful concerned. And so they kind of start looking for him. They want a day's journey. Now, put yourself in their perspective. At first, you're probably not too concerned. He's 12. He's probably up there. Okay, he's probably back there. You can't find him for a while. Maybe an hour or two passes. And then Mary says, you know what? I'm going to head to the front. Joseph, you head to the back. We're going to try to find him. Now, parents, if you've ever lost your kid for a second, that's one of the worst feelings in the world. All of a sudden, you just lose him for a second, just literally a second, and your stomach just starts to drop. Now, a second can turn into half a minute, and all of a sudden, you're in despair. Where are they? Could they be? Then it turns into a minute, and it's such a short period of time. But just that thought process going through your head, it's an awful, awful feeling. I can remember when Elias was little. He was only just a couple years old. We went to this family fun day event, and they had these big bounce houses. And he was, he was too little to do the bounce houses, But I wanted to live vicariously through him. I was too old to do it. So I wanted to go up and do it. And I was kind of hoping when I would take Elias up, the guy would say, oh, you just go through with him just to make sure. He didn't. I was very disappointed. But Elias goes up. He comes down the big slide at the back of the big bounce house. And he just plops down. And then he never popped back up. Okay, no big deal. You're kind of looking. Couldn't find him. Now, once again, we're talking seconds turn into a half a minute which maybe turns into a minute or two. But in that minute or two, the feeling that you're going through is just an awful, awful feeling. So imagine Mary and Joseph now as the day goes on. What, what, you didn't find him? You didn't see him? Verse 45, so when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now they're heading back to Jerusalem. Verse 46, so now it was that after three days, three days, Please remember, this is one of the required feasts to go to in Jerusalem. Jerusalem would be overrun with people. You're going into this big city, trying to find your kid. What an awful feeling they must have had. What going through. Please note in verse 46, I don't think it's a coincidence, that happened for three days, they couldn't find him. Now what happened during Resurrection Week here? For three days, it's not that they couldn't find Jesus, but they just lost all hope with him. Well, they knew where he was. He was in the tomb, right? So it's not that they lost him. 
They lost sight of him spiritually. Here, they literally lost him, but they find him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Three days. Verse 49, first recorded words of Jesus in the Bible. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? There's a lot in that verse. A lot in that verse. First off, verse 48. Your father and I have sought you anxiously. Jesus' response. I don't think it's an insult to Joseph. It's an honest statement. No, I'm about my spiritual father's business. I'm about my real father's business. And you see a focus right here from at the age of 12 that Jesus' focus was to do his father's business. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We see it ending 21 years later on the cross where he says, It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Rewind 21 years to a 12-year-old boy. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? I must. Now that word for must is really interesting. In the Greek, you have different words for must. In the English language, we have the word must. But in the Greek, there's different levels of it. This word for must in the Greek is a very strong word. I, I, I must be about this. And Jesus uses this repeatedly, this certain Greek word throughout the New Testament. I just want to share some verses with you. I'm just going to go from the book of Luke alone, since that's where we're in. In Luke 4.43, But Jesus said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. See, he says, this is my purpose. I must do this. Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. He knew his focus. He knew his mission. He knew what he must do. Luke 17.25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected. Luke 24.7, the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. He knew his focus in the last one. Luke 24.44, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets. Jesus knew what his focus was and he knew what he was supposed to do. Jesus was born to die and it must happen. And he knew this all the way back. His father's business. He knew what his focus was. And so that's why when he says on the cross, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He has accomplished his father's business. That's what he must do. Now, I want to take this. Let's go just a little deeper. Let's look at just two of these must statements. Luke 9, please. Luke 9. How often do we use that word? Maybe we don't say the word must. I have to. I have to get this done. Do you really have to? See, what I, what I want you to think about this morning is this. I want you to think about what really matters in the whole scheme of eternity, in the whole scheme of heaven and hell. If we really believe Genesis to Revelation, if we really believe in the eternity of existence, what must we do? Jesus said, these are things I must do. Verse 22, Luke 9, we already read this. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. But look, right to the next passage. Then he said to them all, 
If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and he himself is destroyed or lost? See, Jesus takes, this is what I must do in verse 22. And then he immediately goes into us. He's saying, listen, I must die on the cross. And then he comes in verse 23. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you're a note taker, there's three important words in verse 23. You see, deny, take, and follow. Deny, take, and follow. That first one, deny. This is an ongoing process of denying who you are. Because you cease to exist. Look at verse 24. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We're so busy living for ourselves. Best way to live is to learn to die first. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell us in verse 24. Are you willing to lose your life for his sake? Now, I'm not talking about martyrdom. I'm just talking about in the day in, day out of your life. Are you willing in verse 23 to deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow? This is an ongoing battle in our lives. Jesus set the example from the age 12, I must be about my father's business, and then finished it with the words, it is finished. He set the example for us, and he said, are you willing to die to yourself? What does that look like? For every person, it's different. I don't know what you need to die to. Maybe it's died to the dreams that you've always wanted. Maybe it's died to the desires that you want. Maybe it's dying to those wants. Maybe it's dying to things that you call needs that God does not determine a need. Maybe it's dying to pride. It's dying to who you are. I don't know, but what Jesus is saying in verse 24, if you really want to live, if you really want to live, you've got to cease to exist first. And when you cease to exist and you die to yourself, you can finally live. And that's where it means to deny, and then I take up my cross, that spiritual responsibility that God has given me, and I follow. I'm telling you right now, there's a lot of people in name say they follow Christ. But what Jesus is really looking for and what Jesus is really asking for is this. Are you willing to let go of all of it? Now, I know this is a pretty heavy message, especially for Resurrection Sunday when everybody shows up, etc., But the truth is, if we really want to live, we got to die first. Deny, take, and follow. Now let's build on this. Can you go with me to the next one? Luke 17, please. Luke 17. Here's another one of the passages that we read. Luke 17, verse 25. Jesus speaking. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. There's our word must again. Jesus is saying, I must suffer. I must be rejected. This is the cross. This is what I've come for since age 12, 21 years later. It is finished. But now look what else he says. Verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And that day he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. Likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Did you catch verse 33 again? There's our connection. Verse 25. Jesus must, 
verse 33, we're called to lose our lives. See, Jesus, anytime he comes up and he tells us, listen, I must go to the cross. A few verses later, he's saying, hey, guys, I want you to let go of yourself as well. I want you to disappear. I want you to deny. I want you to die who you are. And then you can finally live. Now, what does that look like? I can only tell you this. I've been in this process, it seems like, for the last few years of just, Lord, really learning to let go of things. And really stopping and realizing, listen, in the whole matter of heaven and hell, does it really matter? If I really believe that every person I talk to is either going to spend eternity or heaven or hell, why why am I even getting worked up about this? Why am I even bothering myself with this? Yes, the health issues can become big. Yes, emotional stress can become big. Yes, physical problems, spiritual issues. I get that. But in the whole scheme of heaven and hell, we're dealing with the eternity of people's souls. Can I not learn to let go of me and then learn to focus on him? But it's hard to let go of yourself, isn't it? You've heard me say this before. In the Bible, God will work with murderers, thieves, liars, adulterers. But he won't work with pride. If someone has pride where they think it's all about them, he won't work with it. And pride is so prevalent among us. Sometimes we don't even notice it. We were talking at a small group study recently about what the word humble means. And we talked about how so often we misuse that term humble. Somebody comes up and says, oh, I'm I'm really not very good at that. And we think they're being humble. But did you catch the statement? I'm not very good at that. The focus is still on me. I am wanting to let you know that I'm not good at that. Or we say statements like this. I'm not too proud to admit that I'm wrong. Okay, so now you're proud about being humble. There's a guy that comes out to church here that has a shirt that says humble and proud of it. You know, that's the mindset that we have. There's this pride. And we see it from a young age. From babies where the world, they think it revolves around them. I have a pastor friend that talks about this term a lot. He says that uh, people suffer from the disease of ingrown eyeballs. They only see themselves. Somebody out here at church a few weeks ago was trying to be real nice, and they found an old copy of a newspaper that had a picture of one of the boys in it, one of our boys. So I took it home and, and showed it to them. And I did not know this, but that one son keeps track of how many times he's been in the Deschler flag. You know, God bless the Dasher flag. I'm not trying to be rude, but he, he, I think I've been in the Dasher flag more than anybody in our family. I didn't know we were keeping track of this. This is that pride that is just everywhere. And it's the pride that keeps us from saying, I'm sorry. It's the pride that keeps us from trying to build bridges. It's the pride that keeps us from ministry. It's a pride that's there. And that's why we need to deny ourselves. We need to die and we need to disappear. Because it's not about us. It's about an empty tomb. It's about it is finished. And so Jesus gives practical examples right here in Luke 17. What does he look like? Verse 26, days of Noah. What was going on in the days of Noah? Verse 28, 7, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying. Then the flood came. Does that mean we're not supposed to go live life? No, live life. But please remember while you're living life, there are certain things you have to do. You need to provide a living for yourself. You have certain things you need to take care of at home, laundry, dishes, etc., But never get so focused on living life that you forget you're really supposed to die. See, what were they doing that was wrong? Is eating wrong? Is drinking wrong? Is marrying wrong? No. But that was their focus. And they didn't realize the end of the world was coming. And I think it's fascinating that the Lord uses the example of marriage in verse 27. 
Why? Because when you're talking about marriage, you're trying to look long term. I tell you, I don't know how long we'll be on this earth. So yes, marriage, long term, that commitment, I get that. But really the Lord is saying, you're a vapor. And the Bible says that he holds my very breath in his hands. And if you've ever looked at when a wedding is coming up, I've done lots of weddings, and I always remind, remind the bride and groom, listen, all this work and effort you're putting into it, the ceremony lasts about 15 minutes. Just remember that. But when people are so focused on marriage, and I'm not picking on anybody here. If you're here today and you're getting married, I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying it's interesting he uses this example because I've seen people, when they get into the focus of marriage, the world stops turning to plan the wedding. Nothing else matters. You could hear on the news that the entire continent of Africa disappeared. Your first thought is, will it affect my wedding? You know, because it's such a sole focus on marriage. And the God is saying, we got to look past that. we got to look past the eating, the drinking, the marriage. It's about me. And he goes and talks about verse 28. Sodom and Gomorrah, they're eating, they're drinking, they're buying, they're selling, they're planting, they're building. They're not focused on maybe marriage. They're focused on life, activities, projects. Isn't it amazing how projects can take over your life? Now, guys, you may be here this morning and the whole marriage thing, yeah, you didn't spend a minute on your marriage. Your wife planned everything, but you got a project. And every time you get a free moment, you got a scrap piece of paper and you're redrawing it. You're making the supply list. You've compared prices at Home Depot, Lowe's, Menards. You've spent hours planning this, but yet five minutes in devotions. Because this project, this project's a big deal. This is all you think about. I gotta get this done. I gotta complete this project. I gotta buy, I gotta sell, I gotta plant, I gotta build. Those things may not necessarily be wrong, but it becomes our life's focus. And it's amazing how a project, a, a remodel, a landscaping, you fill in the blank, it just becomes everything. And what Jesus is saying is, do you realize how these things will come and grab you? And what you really need to do, what you really need to do is verse 33. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Let go. Once again, it doesn't mean that those things are not important. Accomplish the tasks that you need to accomplish, and let the Lord lead and guide you in what's important. But really what matters is leaving ourselves, denying ourselves, dying to ourselves, and living for the Lord. So fine, you have that sense of accomplishment by that project, that whatever. But what really matters are souls. What really matters is going deeper in the Lord. Now, let's talk about this idea of busyness, though. Can you go with me? i got a verse I'm going to share with you in Revelation, please. Revelation 2. Because we're busy, aren't we? There's always something going on. There's a busyness. There's a busyness with the calendar of commitments and sports and school and papers and tests. You know, coming down to the end of the school year here, if you're in college, I'm assuming you have a whole lot of stuff on the syllabus that still needs to be done. you got stuff even at school. There's just this constant busyness. And we've talked a lot about busyness. Talked about how in the parable of the sower and the seed, Satan will use the busyness of life to choke you out. So therefore, what you think at that moment is so vitally important really doesn't matter in the whole scheme of things. Still do your best because you work as if working for the Lord, not for man. But the only thing that matters is eternity. Remember Jesus. I must be about my Father's business. I must. So careful of the world trying to choke you out. We already talked about that. What about spiritual busyness, though? Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, 
So this is written to the church of Ephesus. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Boy, this is a good church. This church is busy. Look at all the stuff they're doing, verse 2. Your works, your labor, your patience. You can't stand those who are evil. They're testing out truth, verse 3. They're persevering, patience, labor, for my name's sake. This is the church. That they're bulletin. There's so much going on. They've got to put an extra piece of paper in the bulletin. Because there's so many activities. This is the church that there's always something going on. There's this constant activity. Busyness. Never equate busyness with depth in your relationship with Christ. Busyness does not equal being deep in the Lord. It doesn't. This church is busy. But verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. They're so busy for the Lord. Remember, for my name's sake, verse 3, that they're not even really going deeper in the Lord. I know Christians that are just constantly doing stuff for Jesus. There's a busyness there. But is there depth in their walk in relationship with the Lord? Because really what you see when you study out the Bible is generally the deeper you go in the Lord, the more you're supposed to sit. Think about this Psalm, Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. Be still. Think about the example of Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is always getting away from people. Crowds get too big. You know what Jesus does? He leaves. He goes to the wilderness and prays for a while. That's what Jesus does. And so they can't even find him sometimes. One of my favorite verses is in Mark chapter 1, where the disciples come to Jesus and say, everybody is looking for you. Jesus basically says, yeah, I'm praying. I'm kind of busy right now. But see, but that's not what we equate depth. We equate depth with more, more activity. Look at us. Where really, when you study out the Bible, you want depth. Sometimes it's backing away. It's more time alone with the Lord. What does this look like? I heard a great teaching one time by a pastor and just made a comment about the tabernacle and the busyness of it and the different places. And it's something I just keep chewing on. If you were with me a few Wednesdays ago, you heard me use this example, so just uh, have patience with me as I repeat it. But, but kind of envision the tabernacle in the Old Testament. In the tabernacle, you had, you had four areas. You had outside the tabernacle. Then you had what's called the outer court, which are actually in the tabernacle fenced-in area. Then you could actually go into the tabernacle tent itself, and then you'd have the Holy of Holies. Now, if you're outside the actual gate, it's a picture of being outside the Lord. There's only one way to get in the tabernacle. Hence, Jesus, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's one way to get into the tabernacle. That is a relationship with the Lord. Now, once you come into the tabernacle, it's fenced in, and this outer area would be amazing. This is where you have the bronze laver to do the washings, the ceremonial washings. You have the huge altar where there's animals being sacrificed left and right. This is where you'd want to set up a lawn chair and just, wow, Lord. They're coming in. Here comes the animals. Is this a peace offering? Is this a trespass? Is this a sin? Is this a burnt? You'd watch the animal be sacrificed. It'd probably smell like a barbecue because they're always cooking meat. There's people all around, ceremonial washings, constant activity. Now, you go into the actual tabernacle itself. Now, you go into the first part. Now, you only go in twice a day. You have the incense that you need to make sure it gets offered in the morning and the evening. 
You'd have the uh, menorah that you need to make sure it's staying lit. Then you have the showbread that gets replaced once a week. So now as you get into the tabernacle, the actual self, you only go in twice a day, and that's only a certain priest. Then there's the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, where God's presence dwells. High priest gets to go on one day of year, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. One day a year, that's all. That, that place only gets visited once a year. But isn't it fascinating that when you read the New Testament, where does the Lord want us? In the Holy of Holies. That's where he wants us. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says the veil was torn from top to bottom, giving us access to the Holy of Holies, because Christ wants us in a relationship with him. Now, truth is, we like the outer court area. There's just so much activity and bustling, and I feel like I'm accomplishing something and doing something. And if you get into the inner court, the inner part of the tabernacle, and you're like, well, yeah, this is nice. I mean, the whole incense, menorah, showbread thing, but there's not so much fun. Holy of holies? That's boring. One day a year? Can't hear anything. Everybody's having a great time outside. And I'm stuck in the holy of holies? No, you're in God's presence. I just want to encourage you, and I don't know what it looks like for you, but what the Lord has laid on my heart lately is, James, it's not about how much you're doing. It's about just being with me. That's the goal, It's to know Jesus and to know him personally. And where is he at? The Holy of Holies. You've got activity down, great. But the point is to maybe get in there. Does that mean you do less? It may mean Because what you're doing is definitely of the Lord. Am I saying that activities are wrong? Of course not. But remember, busyness does not equal depth in your relationship with Christ. Remember the example of Mary and Martha at Lazarus' house. Martha's busy serving. Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet, doing nothing. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, Mary has chosen the better thing. Mary chose the better thing, which is to do what? Just sit at my feet and be in my presence. Do you realize how freeing that is spiritually to realize it's not about how much I do. It's just about going deeper in Jesus. Oh, that's freeing. To all of a sudden realize I don't have to fill every second of the day. I don't have to have this calendar that impresses people. I don't have to have connections. I don't have to be involved in everything. I just want to know Christ and know him crucified and just be in the Holy of Holies and sit at his presence. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, if you're just sitting in the Holy of Holies, who's going to get all the work done? The beauty of being in there is you know what God's will is perfectly for your life. And so, therefore, you know when God's asked you to do something, you know it. It's clear. It's concise. Because you've quieted everything else around you. And you say, Lord, I get it now. This is what you want me to go do. Remember what we're reading in 2 Peter. Make your calling and election sure. Lord, I am sure this is what you've called me to do. Now, this is what I want to finish up with. Can you go with me now to the book of Galatians? Let's put this all together. Jesus' last words, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He accomplished what he said 21 years earlier. I must be about my father's business. And then we talked about all these different must things. I must preach. I must die. I must suffer. I must do these things. And in the same context of saying, these are the things I must do, he then comes to us and says, listen, I'm not going to do something. I'm not going to ask you to do something that I've not set the example for. So therefore, I have set the example of service. I've set the example of ministry. I have set the example I'm willing to give up my life 
Will you lay down your life for me now? Will you deny, take, and then follow? Will you learn the best way to live is to die? And when you get that, you can truly live for me and come into my presence and really know what it means to have that depth of relationship with the Lord. Now, to get to that point, it's a difficult process. I was reading through Galatians, you know, probably a month or two ago for devotions, and this phrase kept popping up, this idea of being crucified. Look here at Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul speaking. Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ... It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I start thinking about that. What does that mean to be crucified? Crucified. It is a painful process. It hurts. It's a long, drawn-out process. Remember, when Jesus died on the cross after a few hours, they were surprised how quick it went. So when when Paul is saying that we're supposed to be crucified with Christ, Paul is saying, are you willing to die? And guess what he says? It's going to be a long process. It's going to be a painful process where you learn to deny, die, and disappear. But are we willing to do that? But it wasn't just that verse. Remember, if the Bible says something once, it's obviously important. It's God's word. If you find that same thing being repeated again, you better be paying attention. When you start seeing it three times, you know the Lord is really trying to get a point across. So I saw that in Galatians 2.20. And then build with me. Go to Galatians 5, please. Look at Galatians 5, verse 24. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He says, listen, you, you have crucified your passions and desires. Now before you sit here and think, well, that doesn't sound like fun. My passions and my desires. This is what I want to be in life. This is who I want to be. And God's taking away. No. He's getting rid of the stuff that's going to cause you hurt and harm. I have come to the conclusion that my passions and desires generally do not line up with God's will. My passions and desires promote me, not Jesus. So if I'm really willing to deny, die, and disappear, my passions and desires, it's like, you know what? i got to let them go. Because it's not about me. It's about Him. And we're supposed to crucify the flesh. Long painful process of letting go of who we are. And lastly, look at Galatians 6, verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, I have died to the world. I've died to it. So therefore, what the world wants to throw at me, yeah, I can, I can let it go. Those passions, those desires, I can let it go. That pat on the back at work, yeah, that means nothing from man. That promotion means nothing. That raise means nothing. Sure, it's nice to have, but no, it means nothing. That attention means nothing. Recognition means nothing. None of it means anything. But yet, that's what our flesh constantly strives for. We always are looking at how to fulfill ourselves. Do you not notice yourself doing that? I notice all the time. I'll get done eating breakfast at 8.30, and I'm already thinking, you know what sounds good for lunch? I'm already thinking. Well, what Paul is trying to tell me here in Galatians is saying, die, deny, disappear, crucify. Jesus at age 12, I must be about my father's business, and then he accomplished it. So when we come together on Resurrection Sunday, what are we really looking at? It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit his mission was accomplished. And he said, I'm asking you to do the same. And I can only tell you from my experience right now, and I'm not saying I got it figured out because I don't, 
But the Lord for the last few years has really been working on me. And when I realize that it's not about me, wow, how freeing is that? Lord, does this bring you glory? Then amen, that's what I want. Lord, does this further the kingdom? Then amen, that's what I want. It's all about you. What good does it do for me to make these grandiose plans about the future and my will and my life and my aspiring expectations? Nah, I'm a vapor, a breath in the hand of God. Lord, how can I glorify you at this moment right now and live for you? Die, deny, and disappear. Boy, that's where you really find out how to live. That's what we want to do today. That's what we want to do is live. Worship team, if you come forward here for the final song. Hey, let's pray this into our lives.